This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm David Canfield. I'm all by myself today. Uh, but this is a really fun interview episode to close out the Emmy voting window. We have two very special directors uh, on the show today, the first of whom I interviewed. Uh, that's Peter Hoare, the director of The Last of Us, and the second of whom is Dan Trachtenberg, the director of Prey. First, we'll go to my conversation with Peter. He's a real TV journeyman, and one thing we really got into was just the fact that he has been working in this medium for such a long time in a capacity that often does not get as much respect uh, as writers for television or directors for film. But Peter Hoare has done a really interesting job of making a name for himself. He won a BAFTA a few years ago for It's a Sin, the HBO Max miniseries, which he helmed in its entirety. And he's gotten a lot of attention for the standalone episode of The Last of Us, Long, Long Time, which stars Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman as a, a couple who essentially find love and grow old through the apocalypse. Uh, so we talked about that and much more. Here's my conversation with Peter Hoare. Peter Hoare, you are a first-time Emmy nominee for The Last of Us. First of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm curious how it's felt to navigate award season uh, the big, big, beautiful award season that we do here <laughs> uh, around Emmy's time, and just what it's felt like for this kind of recognition for um, a pretty special episode of this very widely embraced series. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, the series has been amazing, so wonderfully um, received. I mean, it's I love the game. I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't wait to be a part of it. I didn't know which episode I was going to get. Then they sent the script, and it was, you know, couldn't have been more. Uh, incredible couldn't be more suitable i feel because i did a job called uh it's a sin for channel mm -hmm. 4 hbo max and i think that may have been that sort of stepping stone into doing this and um i feel like yeah i'd, I'd been flexing my my queer storytelling um credentials mm. and um and th and then this happened so you know amazing amazing that it was recognized on two levels one by the fans and one obviously now one by the by my peers and that feels good i honestly i i'm over the moon i'm overjoyed but i think i'm just grateful as well that it happened on two fronts it's 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 the emmy thing but it's also 
the public they they love it they love it they want to talk about it all the time i may i shot it two years ago like two years ago in a few weeks time right. and then and and we're still here talking about it so that's just just wonderful yeah it's it's pretty amazing for viewers like me who are maybe less inclined to watch a zombie apocalypse video game adaptation this was the episode uh the episode for listeners is long long time uh the the standalone in a way with murray bartlett and nick offerman this was the episode that told me this this was a show for me maybe uh, more than i thought you mentioned sort of flexing those queer storytelling directing muscles i have a few questions about that but i'm curious like what the difference is for you between something like It's a Sin, where you helm the entire series, um, beautifully, I might add, and I will ask you more questions about that a little bit later, <laughs> and coming into a show where you're only doing one episode, and you're doing an episode that kind of dramatically expands what people can think of it as. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, at this point in my career, um, obviously, for a lot of people, they've just maybe discovered that I have a name and that they want to talk to me. But I have I have been doing it for 30 years, 30 years in showbiz, so to speak, and, and 20 years directing. So I have done a lot of episodic TV and I'm used to it. I'm used to turning up and, um, you know, mucking in, as it were, and, and getting on with the job, doing, you know, listening to the brief, making everybody happy, getting the job done well. But this doing uh, It's a Sin was was an undertaking, my job is to make my episode fit in. And I just think as we went through it, as we started filming it, as we looked around and took stock of the fact that we were shooting this film outdoors mostly and natural light with two actors in a strawberry field or whatever and a strawberry patch. And, um, you know, it was just so simple and so small. It was so Sundance. <laughs> and uh, and so it just became more and more clear that this was the way, uh, this was sort of how it was going to feel. I, so, yeah, it, Craig Mazin, the, sh the showrunner and the writer of this episode, um, has talked a lot about authenticity uh, in mm. regards to it. And you mentioned the balance between bringing your own voice to it and, and fitting in the broader template. So on the side of your voice to it, and I would imagine the authenticity question, what did your work look like exactly? I guess a lot of that is sort of ingrained in you. I suppose coming off of It's a Sin, where I had really discovered uh, my suitability for something. I mean, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, it, I'm trying to think how I phrase it really, but I just felt so empowered to be able to tell that story. And which is another reason why we all know that more and more people should be empowered to tell their stories because I'm not going to be suitable to tell all of them. Um, and, and there are many, many, you know, vacancies to be filled in our industry with people who, who just, you know, haven't been given a seat at the table. So that's another issue. But I, mm -hmm. I was shooting, do I was doing it to sin. I was a 50 ish gay man. I'd always been out in, in my career. I'd never hidden anything, but I suddenly felt like I was really, truly myself. And that, that was quite amazing to feel that. And I told Russell that, and he was thrilled. And, uh, and as I say, it's not like anybody else made me feel bad at work. They never did. I was always me, but I was just telling this story that I really understood and I really knew and I, I knew how to say it. I knew how to tell the actors how to feel about it and how to make them feel and just, just do it. I, it just felt wonderful, and and then then for that to be recognised, for that to be, to be some so special to so many people, 
as well that was just uh, an incredible experience so so then last of us comes along which of course as we know is is a genre based playstation game so uh, we didn't expect it to necessarily tick some of the same boxes or, or to have some of the same feelings so and i know as well from having done other you know large uh, franchises like like marvel you know you have to get certain things right there it's really important that mm-hmm. That, the, that we don't do everything the fans want, but we do, um, we know what they're there for. We know why they love it. We know that they're going to come and watch. So we, I don't want to be the person that, that, that deliberately upsets any of them. So I love the game anyway. I revisited the game. Um, Craig's scripts were incredible. Episode three was the first time really we stepped away or, or deeper, I should say, rather than away from the narrative. We just went deeper and we told the story of Bill and Frank, which is not explained in the game. So that made me feel a little bit more comfortable in terms of telling that queer story. But also, I think it was great for me to understand, you know, as I'm getting older and I'm learning, understanding what the you know definitions are, what, what labels are and things like that. Because obviously, here's a world that's been obliterated. It's unrecognisable to our own in many ways. And, and lots of people want to talk about, oh, you know, characters being made gay or whatever and it's like well this is this is much more complicated than that because the world is 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 different bill's identification i mean we could talk all day about that about how bill sees himself i don't think bill would have ever said oh yes hello i'm a gay man my name's bill i'm a gay man it's it's like bill's bill and you know frank is frank and bill finds himself because of frank because of one individual in a very disparate difficult time and, you know, but I think what's important about why it worked for so many people is it was just basically about love. It was a love story. Mm-hmm. It happened to be about two men and it, it had so many touches brought to it by Craig, a straight man, but just said, he said, I think he said it in interviews, but he certainly said, look, I don't know about being gay, but I do know about being married and I'm going to write mm-hmm. about that. And I think that combination worked. My my sort of input, my my way of seeing, we had Murray, of course, who is a gay man. And then we had Nick, who is not. I had Eben at my side, Eben Bolter, who is a straight man. And, you know, we were all in it together. I mean, a lot of boys, but then it's a story about them. So I feel like that's okay. Um, I did have lots of other, you know, female voices around me as well as in, in, in the, the team, wider team. But but we all had something to say about love and we all had something to say about that understanding of, of why. And of course, the greater story of of last of us is the why why do we survive what's the point why are we going through all of it and uh you know if it's not for somebody or 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 something like you know or, or a feeling like love i'm david remnick host of the new yorker radio hour there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. You talked about this as starting to feel like a feature in its own right. And with It's a Sin, you you have 
every episode to yourself in a way. Mm. With with both of those experiences versus what I imagine is a lot of your career in television, was there kind of a greater sense of ownership uh, artistically over the material? Obviously, you're still collaborating with lots of people, but... Yeah, I mean, that's it. I, I've made TV my whole life, so collaboration is the name of the game, and I love working with some of the best writers I've ever worked with, obviously, in those last few years. Russell T. Davis and Craig Mazin, you know, and also I've just done a pilot with a great new-ish, as in new to me, new to pilots writer called Andy Parker, and I'm loving that collaboration as well. I... I like collaboration, but yeah, it does give you a chance to flex some muscles, to control, if that's the right word, the uh, the narrative. Yeah, I mean, doing doing everything. I mean, everyone always talks about directors being being control freaks, but doing everything just is just it just makes sense sometimes when stories are manageable. I think if you're doing like ten episodes or something, I personally wouldn't want to do that. But I mean, five episodes of It's a Sin, mm. I could handle. I also did a three part story with um Russell after that called Nolly, which I think comes to American screens soon, uh, and stars Helena Bonham Carter. And that was even more like a, a movie because it, it was, you know, I think it edits to about two hours to get them one all together. But it's just a joy because, you know, and it's not about competition either, but it's just everybody Everybody comes to the director and goes, what should this be? How should it feel? What should it look like? You know, and, and it's just you. It's just you. And uh, mm-hmm. I think Russell, Russell's, I don't want to say demanding because that's unfair, but Russell's, Russell knows what he wants exactly, but at the same time, he's incredibly generous. So that is a wonderful balance because I don't, you know, I like to know that a writer is in total control of what they're doing. And I think he as a writer is very happy to let me go and do what I do. And and that's a wonderful balance for someone as, as experienced and as brilliant as he is. And and Craig's similar. I mean, Craig, Craig is there every day on set and Craig is very vocal, but I love, it's exciting. I love all that. Some directors don't, I do. And um, I, I think between us, we were there every step of the way and we, we know we have created something quite special. So I think that collaboration certainly worked on that show. Do you have any particular method or or style when it comes to emotion and, <laughs> and finding that in in your work? Because when I think of both your last episode and it's a sin, there there's a certain element of devastation. Mm. Many people have, have described crying at, at both of them. I will not comment on my experience, but um, yeah, I'm just curious, like how how you find that in in your work. It's an interesting question because it, you're right. I have done two shows that um, have had a very big emotional impact. I mean, now uh, when I talk about those shows and I talk about their importance and you know what I love about them, one of those things is the fact that they make people feel something. I think it's become apparent to mm-hmm. me that if you don't get a feeling out of something you're watching, then that, then that's not a very fair exchange. I think people have people's attention is is the most valuable commodity there is. And I think we as filmmakers, we should be providing something that always makes you feel something, whether it makes you laugh out loud, whether it makes you cry, whether it makes you scared, whatever you have to. And there are a number of, you know, shows and films out there that I think I certainly have come away numb from. So I'm like, I do, I need to do better than that. And I think in terms of crying, I don't think there's a there's a there's a, <laughs> a, 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 a magic pill or anything. Um, I think both those shows work this way because the it's a lesson in script writing and storytelling generally because you know and shot composition. But basically, the lesson is 
make people fall in love with those characters because if they don't then their death mm-hmm. or their demise or whatever that it's not going to mean anything so i think what we did on it's a sin particularly is we cast and created and felt the joy in what otherwise could have been a very dark show about you know the impending death of of, of four bright young things in an era of devastation for the gay gay community queer community so you know lots of people were thinking oh i don't know if i can i do this can i watch this show i know i know it's it's all about people dying isn't it you know who's going to die and um but what people weren't expecting is the joy and the color and the laughter and i think that that's probably also true of last of us i think people weren't expecting to find humor ever there isn't much humor in the world of of the last of us and and Nick can't fail to be funny just because of the way he is and um, just a, a stern stare with a hand on the gun at the dining <laughs> table. And everybody was like, you know, laughing more than they might have done. So I don't, I don't, there is no secret. I think it's a part, there's a, there's a lot of people involved. And, and I've got to also mention Tim Good, our editor, who became the series editor as well. And he helped find a lot of that. And he's a gay man. So there's, there's another input to seeing something on screen that you relate to. And the show also spoke to a, a, a middle-aged bracket of people, and that's particularly middle-aged, you know, older, grey-haired, grey-bearded men who fall in love for the first time, and that certainly did mm-hmm. not go unnoticed. And, and and lots of people, I mean, we picked the actors we picked because they were great actors and they, they weren't ever going to be teenagers or 20-plus-year-olds. So, you know, and they just, I'm not saying they just happened to be grey. I think it was always part of the understanding of those two characters. But yeah. but visually, when you see that and you see it happening in front of you and you go, yeah, you know, it's never over. It's always, there's always a chance I might find that person. I think that really resonated. And to have mm-hmm. it, as I say, as a queer story, um, you know, there are quite a few young, pretty queer stories around. And one of them has only just been released. So and I'm glad about that. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love that. But I think there's also less less of the, you know, less the less of the normal people falling in love, you know? People with bellies and people going grey. Yes. So Yeah, that's very true. Um I wanted to go back a little bit. I think TV directing sometimes it doesn't get as much uh, I don't want to say attention necessarily, but it, it isn't always the focus of coverage uh, from people like me and things like that. But I look at, you know, the category you're nominated in, you've got Mike White and Mark Mylod mm. and, you know, Lorene Scafaria and all these people who have had these really fascinating and lengthy careers and and all the episodes that I think you're with are, are representative of kind of what the art looks like or should look like. You're right. And I was also flying the flag for TV directors because we are, um, like you say, I'm not, we, we're often overlooked in terms of our skills. And we're, I've always mm-hmm. said, people say, what's the difference between directing a movie and directing a film? And of course, I can't answer that question because I haven't directed a movie. But <laughs> what I can say is from what I understand, there is no difference. It's just that certain hierarchies, sometimes directors are in charge and writers are in charge. But ultimately, the process of directing, the shot selection, if you like, the performance notes, the the, the general you know staying power of getting a job done and, 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 and getting it made, they're the same, but over but over the years, with the inventions uh, of of Netflix and and the others, I think we've all come to realise now that TV is very much on a par with in terms of its creative um, potential with movies. I mean, the money's the same, or budgets are certainly high, uh, and you know there are no there's nothing to hold us back. 
Our next guest is Dan Trachtenberg. Uh, Katie spoke with him. He is a multi-Emmy nominee this year for, of all things, Prey, the new Predator film, which streamed on Hulu and therefore was eligible as a TV movie. This film kind of single-handedly broke the the curse for TV movies at the Emmys of late. It's not typical for them to be nominated for directing and writing as he was. Uh, it actually got six nominations total, uh, which leads all TV movies. Um, and it's a really kind of serendipitous journey uh, for this franchise and for this filmmaker who has similarly to Peter worked in a lot of television. He's directed episodes of Black Mirror and The Boys. And uh, certainly this represents a real breakthrough. So let's hear uh, Katie's conversation with Dan about all that and more. Uh, so I'm so excited to be talking to Dan Trachtenberg and getting to celebrate your, uh, how many Emmy nominations for Prey? I believe it's eight Emmy nominations? No, 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 six. Six Emmy nominations. But still awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, first of all, I think Emmy nominations, when you started the long journey of making this movie in, what, 2016, is probably not part of the formula. It had, like, a really interesting road to get to where we all saw it. Um, but when you talk to Emmy nominees, I think a lot of times, you know, I talked to Daniel Radcliffe about Weird and how exciting it was that that movie got multiple nominations and a lot of other people who worked on the movie got to be part of it. So what was that part of it like for you that so many members of the team got recognized in that way? The best part, <laughs> especially leading up to the Emmys. There have been some other awards. Our editors got recognized. Our sound team got recognized. They're all recognized at the Emmys, which is remarkable. But even greater is the, the our composer, Sarah mm -hmm, Shackner, mm -hmm. who uh, I thought did just a tremendous and unique job yeah. on a genre film, combining lots of different genres of music, sometimes historical and sweeping, sometimes straight horror, um, very modern, very traditional, um, working with Native American musicians, um, doing a lot of the playing herself, the score is filled with cello, and and every time you hear cello, it's her wow. going to town on it. And yeah, so so seeing her getting recognized. Oh, and and of course, of course, taking some sonic inspiration from the original Predator theme mm -hmm. and infusing that uh, into our into our score as well. Just really um, awesome, and I'm so glad that she's finally uh, getting a little bit of recognition for her work. Do you feel like we sleep on music and genre movies because it's so much of the like experience, like you have that visceral experience watching something that's scary or the thrilling in that way and you don't have as much time to like notice how the individual elements are getting that feeling out of you? Well, I think we have a lot of reverence for the genre music that you and I grew up with yeah. and of the 80s and, and a little bit in the 90s. And some of that is our age. Some of that is also scores in that era were very theme-based. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think we enjoyed because that that was so prevalent. We started to enjoy. You can kind of track the the history of movie score through Hans Zimmer's work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when he did Thin Red Line, suddenly movie scores became much more atmospheric mm -hmm. and patty and 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 emotional, brooding. Um, and I loved that. I think a lot of filmmakers love that and moviegoers enjoyed that. But it did mean that music became A, like, less iconic and recognizable yeah. and B, less hummable. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like not like the John not gonna... Williams Jurassic Park thing where you just know yes. it from three notes. Yeah, yeah, man, you've thought a lot about uh, genre movie music, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> What happens when you're a true blue film nerd, which I definitely know that you are. Yes. Um, Okay. So I mentioned about how, you know, Prey had been in progress. I think since 2016. Is that that's when this idea was when you first started? Maybe 17. Okay. Um, Yeah. I had reached out and they were either prepping or shooting the the Predator, the Shane Black Mm -hmm. Predator. Um, I think it was around 2017. Um, Yeah. So you've had this movie in your head for that long. This movie came out last year. You've been talking about it, doing press for a long time. Has it changed the way you think about it? Like having conversations like this one over and over again, which I don't think, you know, with your previous film, I don't think you really did interviews like this for that long. What does that do to the way you think about your own movie? Correct. It is unique to still be talking about it. It's nice to have a chance to talk about it after you've been able to understand how people how people reacted to it and i've been able to watch all the awesome youtube reactions to the movie and see how it's affected people and know you know what we did well and know what we could have done better and all all that sort of stuff so what surprised you about what the what people have taken away what surprised me the most? Well, it's been like a year, so now nothing surprises you because you've heard everything. Yeah, I've watched so many. Well, I mean, what's interesting is how consistent mm-hmm. so many. Every time that dog shows up on screen, uniformly, everyone says, "You better not kill that dog." Uh-huh. I know they're going to kill the dog. You better not kill the dog. Um, which you know is insane. Everyone knows you don't kill the dog. <laughs> well, but the whole thing of predator movies is that they're very violent, right? Like That's it's true. Like, yes. everything has to be on the table. That's true. That that is true. Yeah, there's a uniform reaction to that to that dog. Uh, quicksand always elicits a sense of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, like like for like Lassie episodes, like when, Lassie like, episodes, <laughs> and but also like the Neverending Story. Uh-huh. I, I was a big you know, reference point for that. And all the, you know, so many of us grew up, I mean, I grew up with a real healthy fear of quicksand. Oh, totally. Not yeah. knowing how little I would ever <laughs> actually interact with it in yeah. life. Um, but like, so, like there was a big thing in the 80s and 90s where every movie had quicksand and slides. Yep. And Predator was no exception. Predator had a slide moment. The Great Outdoors had a slide moment. Explorers had a slide moment. <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure had a slide. Like, mm-hmm. like for some reason, like we were Goonies. Mm-hmm. We wanted to see people romancing the stone. Like, Honey, it's so, the it's, kids. Yes. Yep. I was very anxious to include those kind of things because I wanted this to not feel like Predator was very much an action movie mashed up with a slasher or and yeah, a sci-fi yeah. thing. And I really wanted this to feel more like it's an adventure movie mashed up with mm. those things. Yeah. Um. So. Anyway, uh, but yeah, reactions, I, yeah, uniformly. And, and yeah, the gun um, that was a nod to Predator 2, some people get and some people do not. But certainly for those that do understand the reference, um, I'm, I'm very happy that it's, it's there for yeah. those. Yeah. Um, I feel a little bad confessing this is the only Predator movie I've ever seen. Uh, and maybe oh I should have watched Predator or Predator 2 before I saw this. But I was reading other interviews you did where you were really specific. as like this needs to work for people who have never seen a Predator movie, which is absolutely what happened for me. And I don't think is what a spinoff of a franchise would usually do. So, like, why was that such a priority for you? Clearly it worked because I got the movie entirely. Well, frankly, just to be the best movie possible. Yeah. You know, um, I think I I get frustrated when... I'm watching something 
and it feels more like a tee up for the it doesn't exist by its own merits mm-hmm. you know and you want and the dream is to make something that holds up years from now and so you don't want anyone to tune in having feel the need to see something else to fully understand what something is and um so even that moment i reference with the gun the there's a description on the gun that's a link to predator 2 yeah um but certainly not knowing that the way in which the characters react to that and how that's used and whatever still exists you don't need to know anything else and so yeah i think that's what allows something to be a more elegant uh elevated entry into genre when Mm -hmm. it can exist on its own merit and also like the character story should exist on its own merit you should be invested in in the conflict and the it part of the impulse to have there be a conflict that uh nadu is dealing with before a predator even shows up you know it's it's saying to and you're investing in what she's in in her struggle um and so you care about her accomplishing her goal separate from any of the genre trappings and then when the genre trappings enter it just makes those that much groovier yeah um so uh yeah that's the instinct I mean, so when you you know were starting with this movie, I think you referenced somewhere else. You were like, well, it's like Rogue One and Solo are happening and Star Wars are their own thing, you know, knowing that Shane Black's movie was happening. And I think Correct. that the yeah. attitude toward like universe expansions has changed a lot since then. I think the Star Wars spin-offs have been their own thing. The Marvel universe is kind of finding its own way. It's not necessarily such a gimme that like if you have a successful character, you're going to have a spinoff in the same world. Do you, I mean, do you, would this movie get made today? Do you feel like that the attitude in Hollywood is changing? Because you've so successfully proven how it can work, but people seem kind of afraid of it now. It's a good point. And I think part of what makes this movie tick is... It doesn't need to feel like this is Predator Part 5, you know, yeah. and and it doesn't even need to feel like, and now welcome to the universe of Predator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, There's something so- somewhat enjoyable in that it feels like a one-off story, you know, mm-hmm. that has a finite conclusion um, with a little tease of there could be more, but, <laughs> but in much in the way that the first Terminator felt yeah. very finite totally. and 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 one character's story and even though it was world opening and also ended with a little bit of a like and T two similarly you know could be watched without having seen the first Terminator and 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 yet was certainly better with that and but a lot of us watched it yeah um having not seen the first one and yeah that's true we were way too young for the first one and then the second one was like the biggest movie of all time and you just had to see it exactly (laughs) exactly um and about t2 major reference for prey in that like i would never have thought to show my mom terminator but Mm -hmm. after i saw t2 i was like mom you have to see this movie Mm -hmm. and she loved it because it's a movie about motherhood Mm -hmm. um parenthood and very character and thematically oriented and there's fun visceral stuff but anyway but uh uh, the universe you know expanding on universes i think we enjoy it much more when you don't realize it's happening i'm watching the bear season two right Mm -hmm. now i don't know if you're watching yeah um but there's so many lovely 
some TV shows you you feel it in its bones. Like, oh, I get this is gonna t- wow, the whole season's gonna be about this thing or that, mm-hmm. you know. And there's been a few instances where suddenly it it calls back to a thing, a little detail we saw in an earlier. And you go, oh, oh yeah, this whole world, this is a world of people. This yeah. is the, they exist, um, and. And it is sort of like, you know, oh, wow, because there's a whole episode devoted to this character, almost like a Marvel movie would do a whole mm-hmm. movie, devo- you know? So, like, there, it, it is universe expanding without wearing it on space, yeah. you know? It's like, oh, it just it just sort of sneaks, sneaks up on you. And um, I think that's got potential in, in movies as well. Yeah. I mean, your Hollywood career, you know, has really charted the path of this, like, expanding universe world where that's been so much of the focus. And I'm sure that in your meetings and in other projects you've talked about, you've touched many more of them than we even know in the public record. And, you know, 10 Cloverfield Lane and Prey, I think, are such an, an argument for just using a little bit of imagination and twisting it a little bit. And I do you feel like that willingness to use imagination is that increasing? Are people afraid of it? Are it's like are people just being too literal about what IP can be? Not to have you throw other people under the bus and say you're doing it the right way, but there's a case to be made for just taking a little bit more risks, right? I I think that we are in a moment where more than ever, not in total, but more than ever, risks are being appreciated and and I'm certainly a big proponent of, and I feel it's well-received in my discussions with producers and studios, is that the safest thing is the riskiest thing. Mm-hmm. Like, that people want... But, and, and Barbie, only... By the way, only more emboldened by the success of Barbie oh, yeah. over the... You know, yeah. you know, it was like... right. And I've always... I've referenced this before, but I think Guardians of the Galaxy was always a benchmark for this as well is that could have been marvel's jump the shark movie this is ridiculous a talking raccoon and a tree but there's no and no superhero to speak of um quote unquote uh and those aren't the things that made the movie less good Mm -hmm. or more risky like people were those are the things that made it more successful Mm -hmm. those those were the things that widened the runway like when we have those things we have more of a net to, to make money and to have more people enjoy the movie. Yeah. A, a, a narrower runway is being too redundant to what we've seen before. So then 10 Cloverfield Lane gives you the ability on Prey to say, no, I can do this gamble because look, it worked on this one. Like what else are, not comps of how the movie would be exactly, but what else were you looking to make in that movie being like, no, see how it worked in this? This is what we're going to do. Was there anything specifically that you kind of use as saying, you know, trust me because this movie pulled it off in a similar way? I think I honestly the the biggest help was the script being so focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never so many things I've worked I've worked on big time travel movies and heist films and and those things can be so complicated. Mm-hmm. And this movie was so elemental at its core that even before. Uh, before it was before Fox Disney merger happened, I kept on saying it's like an R rated. Um, Disney princess film. It's like oh, a Pixar movie. I know, literally like, wrote Disney princess because like, you know, wanting yeah. to be taken seriously in your community is such a bedrock of Disney princesses. I thought movies about dreamers and underdogs, you know, it's like very, very, very so, so it just kind of was stirring and moving mm-hmm. and then it uh, being more affordable, relatively speaking sure. for the genre 
because there's a lot of non-actors because we're shooting largely on location and not building giant sets and we can be economical and smart about when visual effects are used and all those things allowed it to feel undeniable and and it what i kept saying and 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 was well heard and and everyone across the board from the crew of the movie to the movie studio in success gets to hug each other and high five each other over wow we made something special mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and we made something that does good for humanity sure. you know for little girls for older girls for first nations native Amer- any indigenous yeah. you know member for people who feel from any walk of life that feel like they have are capable of more than they're aware of or anyone's being for also it it has all sorts of good positivity so to to be able to be like yes we we can do good things and also (laughs) deliver insane predator killing and be a fun time Mm -hmm. it gets people motivated to want to pull it off I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Talking about influences and and the movie itself, I wanted to ask about Westerns, because I don't think you can film out West without having influences there. I mean, you mentioned The Thin Red Light earlier. There's definitely Malicky parts of this that I can tell. Yeah. But what else were your specifically Western influences? Well, The Searchers. Yeah. Um, there's the shot when she comes out of the tent. The- exactly. <laughs> it was a big was a big motivation because The Searchers was a, a one of the large reasons of how we settled on uh, Comanche um, mm. being, the, mm-hmm. being the tribe of focus, because... And the searchers has a really poor representation of um, Native American people, as does so many movies and movie history. But the searchers is such a seminal film, a seminal western yeah. that it felt like a cool thing to like. And that shot has been so replicated in every movie and westerns in particular. So it felt um, awesome to kind of reclaim it and recontextualize it. Um, it's always good. Every time you see and, it, it's good. That's yeah, <laughs> use it, and it's also just a great composition. Yeah. Like it's just great to have that kind of composition. Yeah. Um. So certainly that was a big western. Th- I mean, even things like Once Upon a Time in the West is one of my favorite movies, and that opening ha- with no dialogue and the the movie just once always referencing things like that of how how to tell stories through action. So many westerns function that way, but that one and that opening sequence in particular is a big one. Um. Constantly looking at photography in those movies that fascinatingly um, shot out in bright sunlight and still looked good. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that gave us comfort in moments when we couldn't control the light the way that we wanted to. Mm-hmm. And the, by the way, that was another big desire was to not have it set in the 1800s, mm-hmm. was to have it set far earlier than we usually have seen the Comanche, yeah. certainly, and um, and see movies in this zone. So was that just to get away from the like settlement of the West? Because you see the French traders, but it's obviously they're really outnumbered. Like, what was the specific century? Yeah, is wanting to not or uh, not be steeped as much a in cultural things that we're more aware of. 
that have a certain amount of baggage to it, mm-hmm. wanting to make sure everyone's oriented and these are the protagonists, yeah. the people that were here yeah. before any of that happened. Mm-hmm. It's the before any of that happened. These are the protagonists. And and also just, yeah, going earlier, you know, and, and being that way, it, once again, it can be much more elemental. It's like pure, like this person against these odds without any, there's not, there's no, obviously there's no phones and things and there's no presidents there's no yeah uh, towns there's no that it's like it's like no just that we're just dealing with this yeah because westerns are always like that metaphor for society and culture and everything and you're kind of in a different world than that a totally different world yeah, yeah. so so yeah all that western iconography that was there we even had i at one point we had an intermission in the movie oh, just cool. to play on the thing <laughs> um and uh and it all we all dripped away when we realized, wait a second, that's not actually what we're doing. It just sort of was fun to, to to play with it. I think we don't think a lot about how movies change their story in the edit room sometimes and how it can be for the better. So can you just talk about how how this movie changed after you'd shot it and kind of realized what you had? I mean, what you said is exactly the the main thing was um we had a friends and family screening and filmmaker Wes Ball pointed out very astutely uh we don't see him get any trophies um and <laughs> i assume this is a predator can... thing this is me coming in with no predator knowledge oh yeah yeah so the, yeah and the whole deal with the predator is he's a trophy hunter okay. he comes there collecting trophies um and is looking for the alpha which mm-hmm. was the big thing for this thematic point yeah of, uh, you know this movie um and there was another comment we had from another screening that i that i just was like i thought it was so silly i just put it uh, I didn't. I didn't consider it, which was someone felt like the predator was a vampire because they thought it was drinking the blood of the bear when it lifted <laughs> up. And then when West Ball said that, I went, "Oh, I should not have dismissed that comment earlier. I should have taken it seriously." And like, I get it. We're not. Act- I was doing. I was making the mistake that you, you know, of like the movie wasn't self-contained. It mm-hmm. was relying too much on um, assuming people knew because this creature was such a part of. Um, cinema history or lo- what a pop piece of pop culture that people would know, and they and I, I was like, wait a second, yes, the movie has to exist on its own, and, and also we were having narrative issues where where it felt like they were kind of circling each other, mm-hmm. like Nadu was hunting the predator and the predator was hunting Nadu and and tracking humans a little bit too early to feel believable. We were uh-huh. struggling with all that, and then we realized, oh, the thing to do is put them on parallel paths and see the predator understand how he operates Mm -hmm. watch him leveling up seeing nadu on her trial and then having them collide realize that that they're who they're kind of exactly yes um and that was a massive took massive reconstruction and but and and a little bit more shooting but helped the movie immeasurably how do you learn how to take that feedback and not get defensive because i cannot imagine having to go through that many rounds and it makes the movie better but you you don't have that impulse to be like no my movie's perfect what are you what are you talking about um i mean i'm more afraid of over committing to something mm. and being wrong than i am of being too proud mm-hmm. so i rather just say let me think about that then give a knee jerk like, no, you can't do that because because I think just I'm making mistakes very early and realizing every time I've said no way they can't. Then I sit with it, and you realize, oh wait a second, mm-hmm. maybe if we and really really sitting with the criticism more than the solution, you know, mm-hmm. is it tends to be at those things. Um, so I don't 
you know, if you show something too early, then it's not enough the thing yet. And so you could get criticism that could steer you away from actually doing the right thing. Um, And if you show something too baked, it might be too late for improvement, you know? Um, So I really think about like, I'm showing something in a place where I really want help. Um, so as we said, this movie has been out for a while. We were talking earlier that, you know, you've got some other things that you'll be working on once that things are up and running. I'm curious how making this changed you as a filmmaker. Like, what did you do on this that you really want to do again or really don't want to do again? Or what did you learn about what you want from making Prey? I mean, certainly one of the things was what I mentioned earlier about, like, I want to make something that can show my mom, mm-hmm. you know, it's re- really, really I've almost been seduced before this film and, and even after, like, there's projects that are like, man, that would be a really fun movie um, or fun experience to make and very genre, or you know, um, and a genre that I'd always wanted to work in or what have you, but ultimately couldn't find the way in which it could also be a great movie mm-hmm. that is essential, hmm. that is necessary, you know, that Essential's must be made. a lot made. of pressure to put on yourself, too. Yeah, it is. It's why I've only made two movies so far. Um, but uh, I don't. I know that that's what feels good about Prey, and that's probably a part of why it's being recognized in the in the way that it is, because mm-hmm. it does have things in it that make it feel rewarding, and that that help that make life better. There's something that I can take away from that experience, put in my pocket, keep it with me, and yeah. and have in mind as I go through life. You know, that's what I want out of a movie. Um, and I also don't want only that. I want a great time. I want to, I want all those things. That does it for today's show. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at VF Awards Insider or individually. I'm at David Canfield 97 and Katie is at Katie Rich. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.